Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear. Welcome to the Classic Album Club podcast. In this episode, we revisit Primal Scream's mystifying 1991 album, Screamadelica. I knew quite early on that people were being affected by it very intensely. Music was our life, going to clubs was our life. But really, we were, you know, young artists. We were living in the moment and we were sincere about what we were doing. And we really believed in rock and roll and we really believed that we, we wanted to redeem rock and roll. We'll be hearing from frontman Bobby Gillespie about the Acid House origins of the album and how the band adapted to their distinctive new sound. We were writing with keyboards, um, moving on up was written on the keyboard to fight feel it higher than the sun inner flight we were using way more minor chords kind of moving away from like blues based rock and roll and um, maybe going somewhere more melodic and maybe a gentler place first Bobby Gillespie tells us how a remix of an old primal song started them on the path to forging one of the albums of the decade the guy who'd played guitar on the first uh, album Jim Beatty had left and then um, Robert Young moved from bass to guitar. Andrew Ennis joined on guitar. Everything got a little bit heavier, you know. They were playing Les Pogues through martial amps. And um, there was a kind of MC5, Stooges, New York Dolls, Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers, a huge influence on the sound. I guess uh, we just wanted to have fun and um, play high-energy rock and roll music. And... Um, you know, we, we toured that record. Uh, it wasn't a big record. The band, they weren't, we weren't really a successful band in terms of, you know, record sales or, you know, playing big venues and stuff. We were still playing, like, pubs and stuff and, um, you know, our clubs, discos, you know. Most that would come to see us would be, like, 500 people or something in London, you know. And um, you'd do 300 or something up in Leicester or Derby, you know, 400, 500, you know, but... It wasn't big, but um, those years, 89, um, you had the Acid House uh, explosion uh, here in the UK. And we got involved in that. We we began going to parties. Uh, friends of ours uh, started buying the records and telling us that we should check it out. And um, there was some resistance at first, but slowly, and I think through use of the drug ecstasy, we became uh, seduced and... Um, we made friends in that world, um, notably Andrew Weatherall, who was a DJ, but he also wrote for a, a club fanzine called um, Boys On. And Andy, in the summer of 1989, had um, put, you know, in his column, he was asked, you know, favourite records that, you know, that he was listening to at that point. And, um, and everybody else was writing about, you know, Acid House records and club records. And he wrote the ballads from, all the ballads from the second Primal Scream album. So he was kind of like the only guy, <laughs> writer in Britain, uh, who said that they liked Primal Scream. And um, so we, we asked him uh, to remix one of the tracks from our second album. And he remixed I'm Losing More Than I'll Ever Have. And then that 
song became the dub version of that we called Loaded and then Andy had a white label and wherever he played it in clubs all over the country it would detonate the club people would go crazy then it became an underground hit a club hit and then it got on the charts so that was the f- the first track of Screamadelica was Loaded it was like a dub version you know we, we, we grew up and you know we were in a dub versions of reggae songs when we were punks you know we, we loved the African dub chapter 3 the album by Joe Gibbs and the Professionals which was dub versions reworkings of like you know Jamaican hit, hit singles in Jamaica like vocal tracks so we didn't even know the vocal tracks we just knew the dub versions so and the deconstructions so it was just great to have like a dub version of one of your songs and great that people were dancing to it in clubs but you know like the bass the the percussion the strings the horns that was all from I'm Losing War you know so yeah it felt like a record before uh, Loaded was uh, officially released I got a phone call one night at three in the morning, four in the morning, and I, I was sitting up playing records or reading or something, you know, or watching a film or something, and uh, I got the, I got a phone call. It was Andrew Ennis, guitarist, and screaming. He was very excited, and he um he said, I've just been to Subterranea in West London, where they're always DJing. He played loaded. The place went bananas, you know. It just, like I said before, it detonated the place, you know. He said everybody went crazy. And uh, he said Kevin Rollins from Dexys and Mike Jones from The Clash, B.A.D., came up and they were shaking his hands saying, what a great record, man, what a great record. And um, Kevin and um, Mike are two of our heroes, you know, so I was obviously flattered by that, but he was just like, it was a, a feeling that we were going to have a hit record, you know. We'd been going to those clubs and really digging the sounds that we heard and and you know enjoying enjoying the drugs and enjoying just the, the culture and everybody was friendly and you know that's where the energy was in the late 80s it was an acid house it, you know it wasn't in rock music rock music as far as we were concerned was dead it was defunct it you know it had lost it had lost everything that made it vital in the first place you know and um, the energy was with acid house and to have your record played in one of those clubs and see everybody dancing and going crazy. You know, it was like a real, it was a real live moment where you felt you were part of the culture, you know, part of the greater culture. So that was exciting. Yeah, I loved that. The band's heavy involvement with the Acid House scene proved pivotal in the change in sound that would dominate the new record. We were writing with keyboards. Um, Moving on up was written on the keyboard. To fight, feel it, higher than the sun, inner flight. I think I'm coming down, damaged, and coming together. We're written on guitar. Shine Like Stars was written on the keyboard. We were using way more minor chords and using, I think, major sevenths and stuff. You know, more kind of singer-songwriter, kind of LA, late 60s, early 70s kind of feel, you know. Kind of moving away from like blues-based rock and roll and um, maybe going somewhere more melodic and maybe a gentler place still kind of dark as well you know and maybe slightly melancholic Alan McGee put us in a wage and I think it was £70 a week I was still getting housing benefit because the weekly wage was not enough we we built a little studio in Hackney before it became fashionable we had to build a room within a room to soundproof it um, it was on a, a very small industrial estate next to a, a, a block of council flats and um, it's weird to be quiet and because uh, we were working late at night as well, we'd start at five, six at night and work till ten in the morning or whatever. 
and um, we bought an S1000 sampler and um, a keyboard and um, we began sampling and um, writing songs on um, to drum loops, you know, on keyboards and uh, as I say, moving on up, do fight, feel it, higher than the sun, shine like stars, they were written um, in that style. We kind of kept um, late hours. I think we got up late and we went to bed late. Uh, not because we were always partying, but because that was just, in my case, a protest against uh, industrial working hours. I just, you know, I didn't want to be constrained by get up at seven or half six, be at work for eight. I just wanted to be, maybe live a more bohemian uh, kind of existence where I was looser with my arrangements. Shall we say? And um, I just like the night time because it was quiet and um, I could think, could read and listen to music. And um, even if you went out in the streets, there was no one around and I liked that. The album opener, Moving On Up, mixing the bluesy rock and roll of the Rolling Stones with a repeating house drum loop, signposted this change in direction for the band. The demo was a piano, vocal piano, and maybe... There might have been a drum loop in there. It might have been a bit slower, but uh, I think what was missing was it needed a hook. We had the song, but we needed a signature hook at the beginning. And um, Andrew Ennis um, had the idea of the, the magic bus guitar, the Bodily guitar. As soon as we had that idea, we, we knew exactly what we wanted to do with the track. You know, it suddenly had propulsion, had direction and uh, had, had the rhythm that it needed, you know. Before that, it was just like a, it was a really nice song. Nice piano, you know, nice melody, and um, but it had no high-energy rock and roll thing. I think Andrew's guitar gave it the rock and roll. We recorded Moving On Up up at the studios in um, Jam Studios in Crouch End with Colin Leggett and uh, Jimmy Miller uh, mixed it, and um, we recorded the, the gospel choir and stuff. We did all that stuff, but we recorded lots and lots and lots of tracks, and um, Jimmy was really good at kind of sorting that out, you know, and, and, and leaving stuff out that was that was unneeded, you know, and um, yeah, that's what that's what the producers are for, you know, to help you sort out the chaos of the, the record. Being uh, immersed in Acid House, uh, we were going to clubs and we were hearing, you know, every record it was a bit the groove. You know, and um, we were listening to a lot of black music, a lot of 60s soul, a lot of funk, um, all about the groove. And, you know, for me, I was always, I, I've always been attra- attracted to music that had the big, you know, the big beat, whether it be like Elvis's Sun Sessions or James Brown or Don Summer or um, The Stones or, you know, New York Dolls or Stooges. There's a primal beat. You know, Savage Beat, Link, Ray's got it. The kind of rock and roll I like has got the big beat. Because of the technology, you could, even if you didn't have a funky drummer, you could sample Funky Drummer by James Brown or sample The Meters, you know, a Ziggy Modelist. And um, you could, um, even if you never used those drums in your track, you could uh, write a song to that beat and that rhythm and it would just, it would be a... It would give a, a direction, a certain feel and direction to the song, you know. I mean, it's like, for instance, we did a version of Shine Lit Stars that was faster, which was kind of based on um, Joy by Isaac Hayes. There was some funk guitar that Andrew Ennis put on that was kind of very influenced by Rock Your Baby by George McRae. We we recorded a version of that up at the studio in Crouch End, Jam Studio, but one day we turned up for work and the studio was closed. And the, the mixing desk, the engineer, was there, one of the guys that worked there, and said, the mixing desk is gone, 
all the tapes are gone, all the outboard equipment's gone. And what had happened was that the guy who owned it was in a lot of debt and he disappeared as well. So some of the tapes had gone. One of the tapes that went missing was the Shane Lake Stars. I secretly was very happy about that because I felt that we should have... It wasn't working. And we even got the orb to do a mix of it. And it it, it, it was just too fast and it didn't really suit the funk uh, approach. And um, so we went to Eden Studios in Cheswick and we recorded we recorded it and we slowed it down and we played, got Martin Duffy to play harmonium. And uh, that's the version that's on Screamadelica. Producer and hitmaker Andrew Weatherall brought a distinctive influence to the album, which can be clearly heard on their cover of the 13 Floor Elevators song, Slip Inside This House. It's an Andy Weatherall mix. Weatherall and Hugo Nicholson were like the rhythm section on that track. And um, the, the, the piano was Martin Duffy, the sitar, the electric choral sitar is Robert Young, you know. In fact, Robert Young sings this song. I wasn't very well. It was the, although it was the summer of nineteen ninety, I was um, I was sick, um, and I had terrible fever. I somehow managed to come up from Brighton to London, but did a couple of passes on the vocal, and then I collapsed. And Robert Young took over vocal duties. He sang it really well, and uh, it's the only song he ever sang. The guy who wrote the, the lyrics was a guy called Tommy Hall, who was a bit older than the rest. I think he felt that LSD could maybe change the world for the better. And we were kind of immersed in like 60s counterculture uh, thinking and um, there was definitely some there's some parallels that uh, I could see. People like Happy Mondays would get Paul Oakenfold to do mixes and then those mixes became like anthems, you know, like WFL and Hallelujah and they were just the best records of that time or like, you know, that that's how we first came across, you know, we, we heard, oh, whether I did a mix for Happy Mondays, maybe you could do a mix for us. It was a very punk approach because these guys were DJs, they knew, they knew about working on the dance floor, but they hadn't been in studios before. They didn't know the rules and we, we found that very attractive. To my mind, we wanted to write an anthem. Like we, we loved like Northern Soul, and we loved Motown, and you know we loved Stacks and Muscle Shoals. We wanted to make a, like a you know dance floor anthem, but you know in a modern way. And uh, so we wrote "Don't Fight You Feel It," and um, what to write an anthem? It was a celebration of going out and dancing and then having a good time through ecstasy culture. That was "Don't Fight You Feel It," but I, I didn't feel that the song that we wrote. I felt. I didn't feel that I had the vocal range to really do justice to the song, so we asked uh, Denise Johnson because we'd we'd heard Denise sing with a band called Hypnotone, and uh, we we saw we saw them play at uh, the club was called Solaris, and um, so we went along and heard her singing. Said, "We would you like we singing this song, you know?" So she came down at like a EMI's demo studio, which was in Tottenham Court Road, because we were signed to EMI Publishing. She sang, you know, and I sat in the control room, sang my ideas to her, and she sang some of my ideas, and then she, she put a lot of herself in it, you know, and um, and she she sang it beautifully, and uh, then Andy Weatherall did these three incredible mixes, which he had on a white label that he would play in the clubs, and people would go insane for it, you know, and um, we wanted that to be the single after Come Together, uh, and we wanted that as, as a single in autumn, winter in 1990, but Alan McGee said, it's too extreme, because you, Bob, you're the focal point of the band, you're the singer, but you weren't unloaded. McGee thought it was just too far out. 
at that point, and he possibly was right, you know, because he just said, people are not going to understand us. Screamadelica was beginning to take shape, and in early 1991, the band relocated to Jam Studios in Crouch End to record the rest of the album, coming up in this episode of Classic Album Club. If you can capture that soulfulness and just the way you feel, whether it's an ecstatic feeling, an angry feeling, a sexual feeling, a sad feeling, if you can get that feel in your music, you, you know, you, you're getting somewhere, you know, because other people can relate to that. They relate to the feeling. The feeling is beyond words, and it's beyond chords, and it's beyond the rhythm. It's the feeling. Because of the technology that people could sample stuff in a way that they couldn't do it before, and it was, um, it was like a, ma making a musical poetry, you know, when the only limit was the limits to your imagination, and um, it was just what everybody was doing. It was a culture. I first met Paul Cannell uh, in Clarkenwell Road. I just liked the guy right away. I, I liked the drawing that he did on Phobia. It was just like a little paranoid creature, weird, shriveled up, angry, intense uh, character. And um, I don't know, I just got the idea that maybe he could do something for us. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The song Damaged highlights the diversity that ran through the album and brought the soulful emphasis that Bobby was after. When we recorded it, we recorded it live and um, I think we had maybe Henry Olsen played stand-up bass in it. Martin Duffy plays beautiful country soul keyboards. We were always trying to get a feel. That's what we're about, get a feel. feel try and get f the way that, say, we feel inside ourselves. You want to get that in the music. That's the art you know, capturing that feeling. Because if you can capture that soulfulness and just the way you feel, whether it's an ecstatic feeling, an angry feeling, a sexual feeling, a sad feeling, if you can get that feel in your music, you you know, you, you're getting somewhere, you know, because other people can relate to that. They relate to the feeling. The feeling is beyond words and it's beyond chords and it's beyond the rhythm. It's the feeling. That's what I think is wrong with so much uh, contemporary music. It has got no feeling. Personally, I, I was really into the Midnight Cowboy soundtrack and Superfly by um, Curtis Mayfield. And on the Curtis Mayfield album, there's a track called Think, which is instrumental. And I always loved that track. And I remember thinking, it'd be great to have an instrumental track on an album, something really beautiful like this. That just, no words, just, you know, pure music. And you could just take you on a trip somewhere, you know. You could just, it's open, you know, to interpretation. And, um, so that I guess um, Inner Flight grew from that wish, you know, that desire. Along with live instrumentation, Bobby and the band took advantage of recent developments in sampling technology. 
It was just the times, you know. I think everything was up for grabs, and um, because of the technology, that people could sample stuff in a way that they couldn't do it before. And it was, um, you know, that, that rap records were doing it. You know, hip hop records were doing it. House records were doing it. You know, dance records. Um, you know, it was like a wild west. You know, no copyright laws. I think people were just making records because it. You know, doing sampling because it was. It was new. It was fun. It was. It was like a well. It was like the equivalent of William Burroughs's cut up method, where you cut up old texts from old books and then you reassemble it and then you suddenly have a new sense and you can write a new poem. You know, it was like a, ma- making a musical poetry. You know, uh, you know, when the only limit was the limits to your imagination and. Um, we were just, it was just what everybody was doing, it was a culture. Another striking feature of the album was the cover, which was inspired by the work of Creation Records in-house artist Paul Cannell. I first met Paul Cannell uh, in Clerkenwell Road. He uh, had been doing artworks for a band called Flowered Up, who'd released a record called Phobia on Heavenly Records, I think. And um, Jeff Barrett, the guy who was the leader of the Heavenly was at that point our press officer and um, I just liked the guy right away and I, I liked the I liked the, the I liked the sort of drawing that he did on Phobia it was just like a little paranoid creature weird shriveled up angry intense uh, character and um, I don't know I just get the idea that maybe he could do something for us so Starting with Higher Than The Sun, I went to see him and I saw some of his paintings and um, I thought, okay, I'm going to give you a song title. It's called Higher Than The Sun and I want you to do a painting. And from that painting, I'm going to make a record sleeve. Now, Canel wanted to hear the lyrics and he wanted to hear the song. I wouldn't let him hear either because I wanted him just to do a painting from his imagination. If he heard the music or the lyric, it would maybe could be too literal and I did not want literal. I wanted abstract. I went back a few weeks later and um, he called me up and said, OK, I've got a painting, come and see it. So he had this bedroom stroke studio that he, and he canvases all over the place on the floor. You know, just pure creativity, everywhere. chaos and creativity. That's how I would describe his scene and how I would describe Canal, his character. Um, he had this beautiful painting. So then I had a guy called Grant Fleming come to photograph it. And from those photographs, I took sections I made a section for the higher than the sun sleeve for the front cover and then I did a, a detail from that. Uh, I would take details from the, the, the main painting and then I would use a detail for the front cover of a 12-inch single and a 7-inch and then I would take a larger detail of that and make that the back sleeve. So I did, uh, I did there were two 12-inches for higher than the sun. So out of those two 12-inches, especially the second 12-inch, there's a sun motif this in the, the painting as part of the, the larger abstract painting. That image was used as an advert for a dealer poster uh, for independent record shops um, c- because at that point Creation uh, was still a truly independent record label. I think it was distributed by the cartel and uh, you know, through Rough Trade. And um, So maybe the dealer poster was like red and it might have had like a white sun emblem. It was quite basic because they never had a lot of money. I did the same for don't fight Philip. He did a painting. Same process. Gave him the title. And we did two 12 inches for that. And we did a short tour of some UK dates. Glasgow, London, Nottingham, maybe Norwich, Bristol. We did about five or six dates. And um, 
a few days after the London gig, about two days after, I had to go to the creation office and I, I saw him again. He was like, "We, you know, the album's ready to go. We need to sleeve." <laughs> so somehow, I think it was McGee said, "What about that sun idea? You know, it, it, it's recurring. It's it's a good image." And so I took the sun idea and I went to see. I don't even remember the guy's name. He was a graphic designer. So I think it was in Putney, and we took the kind of sun idea put it in a computer and then started messing around with the colours and I chose these colours and I cropped it exactly the way you see it in the sleeve and then I made I didn't want any writing in the cover you know I thought I liked albums like Joy Division and New Order the Peter Savile factory designs where there's there's no there's no writing did the back like Changes One Bowie tribute to David Bowie and um, put the gate chose a Grant Fleming photograph for the gatefold sleeve no writing there's no writing anywhere and the song titles inside on the labels, there's no, you know, there's nothing anywhere. It's just the music, and it says who produced it. Everything was minimal uh, for a reason. That was part of the idea, that it would just be like this really powerful image. It's a damaged son, and um, I'm a damaged son. <laughs> and that only came to me a couple of years back, you know. I was thinking, um, I knew there was symbolism in this image, you know. There was... But Canel was a damaged son. He, he died two thousand and five, and um, so he had a lot of problems, with drugs, and um, he was a really beautiful, beautiful man. And um, sad that he's not around, you know. And he never lived to see this image become a stamp. And he was an anarchist, so it had been quite an irony for him to see the Queen's head <laughs> on a stamp, you know, uh, beside Led Zeppelin Four and Pink Floyd and London Calling with the Clash. It was a great moment, you know. Perhaps the song that best represents the true ethos of Screamadelica is the penultimate track, Higher Than the Sun, a dub symphony in two parts, which included more evocative Andrew Weatherall production, alongside a cameo on bass from punk legend Jar Wobble. That track is still out there, you know. It is a fantastic Andrew Weatherall mix of Higher Than the Sun. Um, I remember Weatherall calling up and saying, I, I want to I wanna ask Jar Wobble to play bass in this, and we were like... Is that, is that all right? And we were like, of course, he's our hero, you know. The first pieces of music that I learned playing a, an instrument were uh, two things on guitar, the two-note boredom solo by Buzz Cox, and then uh, Joe Wobble's Public Image Limited bass lines and um, Peter Hook's Joy Division bass lines. And, um, so, yeah, I was we were flattered that Joe Wobble would want to play in a primal scheme track. And, um, yeah, it's pretty... It's, it's experimental, it's... It's out there, you know, it's pretty psychedelic. <laughs> and um, we were actually supposed to play a, a version of Higher Than The Sun with Jaw Wobble at the Empire Ballroom Leicester Square, I think it was July 1991. And um, before we set out on the tour, Martin Duffy, Robert Young, myself and Andrew Ennis, ja- uh, we jammed with Wobble up at uh, rehearsal rooms uh, off Caledonia Road. And um, it was incredible. We jammed for like a couple of hours. In the end, it never happened because the bass player we had at the time, Henry Olsen, freaked out on the day of the gig. I wish we'd handled it better. We never handled it very well, and then we it never worked out. And Ja was um, he was upset, and he, he was right to be upset, you know. And I had to apologise to him and stuff. So that was that was bad, you know. We'd been up all night, played a gig in Bristol, wanted to do a sound check at like ten in the morning, so nobody'd been asleep. Uh, it was right at the end of the tour, so everybody was a bit fuzzy and a bit, you know, mentally dislocated. And uh, 
we made the wrong decision. I think Wobble turned up for the sound check and uh, he was told that he wasn't needed. So that was really, he was upset and he was ready to be upset. And uh, I spoke to him after and um, actually his manager, I had to call his manager and his, his manager let me have it. And I, I had to just sit there and take it. Then I had to call Wobble, which was, you know, call one of my heroes, my teenage heroes. And he was upset, but he was he was, he was was cool, you know. And um, since then, everything's been great. You know, we whenever I see him, he gives us a big hug and... Mm. You know, he's a great, he's a brilliant guy and he's still one of my heroes and, yeah, no, we just handled it wrong, you know. I knew quite early on that people were being affected by it very intensely and that, um, I remember this couple coming up to me uh, in the Zap Club and they they had said that they just had, this is quite soon after the record had been released and they said that they'd had their, their kid, they'd had a child, recently had a child and, um, They'd had the baby had been born a schemadelica, you know. I was thinking, whoa, crazy. And then, you know, over the years, people would tell us that they'd buried their friends to, like, a track in schemadelica, or... Uh, I think Alan McGee's daughter was born to Inner Flight, I think. Um, so I'm I'm happy and uh, always thankful and humbled by people's love for the record, and I think it's an amazing thing, you know. I'm... It's nice, you know. It's great sometimes you walk into the record store and you see, never mind the bollocks, Schemadelica, Transformer, Ziggy Stardust, and I think, hey, that's pretty cool. Maybe it captured the times. Maybe we were the times, you know. We were out every night. We were, you know, that was our life. Music was our life. Going to clubs was our life. But really, we were, you know, young artists and we were sincerely living. We were living in the moment and we were sincere about what, what we were doing and we loved going to the clubs we loved music we were fanatical record collectors and we really believed in rock and roll and we really believed that we we wanted to redeem rock and roll and let it be contemporary modern and uh, we just thought it was stuck in the past and it had it had lost everything that made it attractive in the first place like sex subversion style you know rhythm i honestly think that the acid house moment was a moment of possibility. It was a moment of possibilities and it was a crack in the sky. It was a little bit of light getting through the darkness of Thatcherism. And if you remember the 80s, it was a dark time. You know, Thatcher, threat and nuclear war, you know, continual endless Tory governments, um, repression, deregulation. Acid House was a political and it was a, a communal thing. It wasn't the least. It was about bringing people together and it was about a celebration of life. And a bit brotherhood, and I think that and sisterhood, and I think that as I say, it was a time of possibility. It was a time of where people, just like uh, during the punk times, uh, they were inspired to believe in themselves and uh, realize that they could be creative uh, people and they could make a difference in this world. And if you come together with other people. You can great things can be achieved, and I honestly think that we lived that life, and you can hear it in the music that it was. I think I think the times, the possibilities of those times are in that record, and it's an up record. It's also quite a sad record, and it's 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 quite it's an emotional record. It's full of feeling, but it's joyous. But it's also like a you know, and I think that that had been lost in rock and roll, that sense of joy, and. Um, rebellion you know and it's it's in there you know our thanks to bobby gillespie for revisiting screamadelica i'm mark goodyear you've been listening to classic album club
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.